The Old Testament reading is taken from Genesis chapter 46 verses 1 to 7 and 26 to 30. So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here am I. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Then Jacob set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob their father, their little ones and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained the land of Canaan, and came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters. All his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. Continuing to read from verse 26. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were sixty-six persons in all. And the sons of Joseph, who were born to him in Egypt, were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were seventy. He had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen, and they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. Good morning, it's great to be with you as a virtual visitor at St Joseph's and let me begin by asking you a question. How well do you handle unfinished stories? The people who write the soaps and the, uh, the Netflix serials know that we certainly don't like an unfinished story, which is why their cliffhangers bring us back week by week. But we also have to handle being part of our own unfinished stories, don't we? So uh, some friends of mine got engaged recently. They now face the long wait for married life. Uh, other friends are renovating their house and they had their old kitchen ripped out just the week before lockdown one and had to wait for it to finish, to have the new one put in. And Christians have to handle being part of God's unfinished story. Because being a Christian is like being engaged to Jesus in relationship with him now, but not yet living with him face to face. Um, and uh, it's like being renovated so that the old you is gradually being replaced by the new you. And one thing the Old Testament does because the story was so much more unfinished back then, is to help us handle this. So as we'll see today, the end of the Joseph story is all about 
how to live in God's unfinished story. So let me pray before we go any further. Father, thank you for those who have gone before us, like Jacob and Joseph. Please teach us through them to live in your unfinished story and to set our hearts on the end of it. In Jesus' name. Amen. So last week we saw the big reveal of the Joseph story, when we're finally told what God was doing through everything he let happen, through Joseph being sold into slavery by his brothers, carted off to Egypt, wrongly imprisoned, and finally becoming Pharaoh's number two uh, in order to manage the famine that God had helped him to predict. And the big reveal came when Joseph's brothers returned a second time from famine-stricken Canaan. And Joseph finally told them, chapter 45 and verse 4, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. Or like he says in chapter 50, verse 20, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And so we've seen that the Joseph story is like a case study in God's sovereignty. In other words, in how God is in control of everything, including evil, and working it for good. But the end of Genesis reminds us that God is working a promise, the promise to Abraham back in Genesis 12, verse 1, which says this. Now, the Lord had said to Abram, in other words, Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonours you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God promised there, number one, to make Abraham into a people, uh, number two, to give them a place, a land to live in. And number three, he promised to bless them and through them to bless people all over the earth. And we now know that that last bit was all about coming back into relationship with God through Jesus, which is now open to everyone, everywhere, including you, whoever you are. And the rest of the Bible is just the story of God working out that promise to Abraham which by the end of Joseph's life was still very unfinished business. So the end of Genesis has two lessons for us. And lesson number one is this. Remember, you belong to God's unfinished story and not to the world. So by chapter 45, Joseph has revealed himself to his brothers and he's told them to go and bring his father, Jacob, and the rest of his family from Canaan and bring them down to Egypt. So listen to Genesis 46 verse 1. So Israel, which was Jacob's other name, took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba, which is at the very south of Canaan, near to the border with Egypt. And he offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, Here I am. And then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. Which is really significant because it is the only time in the whole of the Joseph story at which God actually speaks directly to someone. 
And by the way, sometimes uh, we catch ourselves thinking, you know, I wish I'd lived in Bible times when God did that sort of thing. But he didn't do it to everyone and he didn't do it every day. And almost all believers back then, almost all the time, had to live by faith in what God had already said, just like we do. So it's really significant that God knew that Jacob needed directly reassuring. Verse three, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. And he wasn't afraid for his physical safety. After all, his son was now prime minister there. I think he was afraid for his spiritual safety because he knew the promise to Abraham had told him that Canaan, was where God's people belonged and where God would one day make them secure. So I think he feared going down to Egypt and losing the plot spiritually, being seduced by the security that it seemed to offer, getting comfortable there, just settling down as an Egyptian. And that is a good fear and one that we would be wise to share when the world seems to offer us security by promoting us at work or growing our savings, or when we find ourselves getting more comfortable. For example, the settling down of getting our own house, or especially of getting married, can suddenly make us much more materialistic than we ever were before. But if we are settling down into chasing the goals and values of the world, that is not a good thing at all. So as Jacob looked at Egypt, He had a godly fear for his spiritual well-being. As we look at our lives, at our exam chasing, our careers, our ambitions, our possessions, our achievements, I wonder what godly fear we should have for ourselves. What or who could cause you to lose the plot spiritually? What do you think? So the Lord says, chapter 46, verse 3, Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes, that is, when you die. So in chapter 46, Jacob arrives in Egypt and is reunited with Joseph. And in chapter 47, Joseph presents Jacob to Pharaoh. Listen to Genesis 47, verse 7. Then Joseph brought in Jacob, his father, and stood him before Pharaoh. And just get this, Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Now you need to realise this, this is like meeting the queen plus, plus, plus. Pharaoh is the most powerful king in the world. He's actually treated by his people as a god. And Jacob, that little old Mr. Nobody, shuffles him, stands in front of him and says, may the Lord bless you. Because in the presence of all Pharaoh's power and wealth and luxury, he keeps his perspective completely because he knows the real God. Who he says in chapter 48, verse 15 is, The God before whom my father Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who's been my shepherd all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all all evil. He knew God. And so he looked at Pharaoh and he didn't say to himself, I wish I had what you have. He said to Pharaoh, basically, I wish you had what I have in knowing God. May the Lord bless you as well. And I wonder, is that what we are saying about the people around us, however successful, however enviable they appear to be? 
I went to a, a university reunion once a while ago and everyone was asking the predictable, so what are you doing now? And uh, one of them was running a bank, another was a secretary in the treasury, she's now running John Lewis. One was already the youngest ever professor of something. And uh, well, what are you doing now, Ian? And that's when you need to remember you belong to God's unfinished story, not to the world and what it thinks is really important. Chapter 47, verse 8. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how many are the days of the years of your life? You need to know the Egyptians were obsessed with death uh, and how to beat it, a bit like our culture. And Pharaoh was impressed by Jacob's age and maybe thought he'd give him some tips on long life. Verse 9. And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years, few and evil they have been. In other words, don't be impressed by my age. And this life isn't the ultimately, ultimate thing anyway. Thank God it isn't, with all the evil and trouble, as Jacob says, that it involves. And he says, we're all just sojourners. We're just passing through on the way to eternity. So Joseph would have loved that spiritual, which goes, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. And it's a good, healthy thing when believers can say that last line. Well, on to chapter 47, verse 29. And when the time drew near that Israel, i.e. Jacob, must die, he called his son Joseph and he said to him, If now I have found favour in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place, in the land of Canaan. And so again, Jacob was remembering the promise to Abraham that the future for God's people lay not in Egypt, but in Canaan. So that's what his heart was set on. And for us, Canaan is a picture of heaven. And that's what our hearts need to be set on. And my experience is that one of the best ways to learn that is by talking to the most senior saints in our church family, because they, like Jacob, especially through trouble and sadness, have learned to look forward to the end of the story. And that's lesson number two here. Look forward to the end of the story and God's perfect kingdom. And we get a glimpse of that in chapter 49, where Jacob prophesies about the future tribes that his sons are going to become. So Genesis 49, verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. And the most significant thing is what's said about Judah. So look at verse 8. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. So Judah is going to become the most significant tribe in God's plan. Then verse 9, Judah is a lion's cub. So uh, Disney has taught us that the lion is king of the beasts. And back then, like today, pictures of kings were used to symbolise, sorry, pictures of lions were used to symbolise kings. So this is saying Judah will be the tribe that kings come from. So on to verse 10. 
the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. So that makes it sound like there's going to be a long line of these kings until tribute comes to him and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And so in the end, there's going to be a kingdom that includes peoples from all nations as they come and offer their lives to the king in obedience. Does that sound like anything you've ever read about in the New Testament? No wonder Revelation calls Jesus the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. Because Jacob was prophesying about the line of kings from David, starting in the tribe of Judah, the line into which Jesus would one day be born to signify that he is our rightful divine king and that he's come to bring us back into obedience to him. And in Genesis 49, Jacob was saying, that's the end of the story that we have to look forward to, a place of perfect obedience to God. Now, you sometimes hear preaching on heaven that goes like this. Uh, Think of your favourite meal or activity or hobby, and heaven is going to be even better than that. And true as that is, that is a completely us-centred way of thinking about it. Uh, Heaven is going to be my best thing, plus, plus, plus. And even saying the great thing will be seeing believing loved ones again, true as that is, just misses the God-centeredness of heaven. Because what will really make heaven heaven is that everyone there is completely taken up with God and is finally able to be perfectly obedient to God so that there is no sin and evil to spoil the place. And for any of us to be there... We need to be forgiven back into relationship with God now and we need to be changed and made obedient to him. And that is what Jesus' death and resurrection were all about because Jesus died on the cross to pay for our forgiveness and then he rose again so that from heaven he can come into our lives by his spirit and make us people who want to be obedient. Now people just looking into Christianity have often said to me, you know, I'd I'd love some of the blessings of being a a, a Christian, like being forgiven, but I just can't hack the cost of obedience. But the Bible would say obedience is one of the blessings because there is nothing better for us now than respecting God's wisdom about the way he wants us to live. And there will be nothing better in the end than being part of that place where people are able to do that perfectly and there's nothing to mess it up. And that's why having Jesus as king is painted here as the ultimate blessing. Look on to verse 11. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine, of all things, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. What's that on about? Well, back then, the ultimate blessing was a bumper harvest. So having Jesus as king is painted here as the bumperest grape harvest you can imagine. So no one in their right mind would tie their donkey to their vine, because after all, how many grapes are going to be left by the time it's finished munching? You would only do that if you had such an unbelievably blessed harvest that it frankly didn't matter how much the donkey ate. In which case you could even do your washing in wine, assuming you didn't mind everything turning out a bit pink. So verse 11 is is this picture of unimaginable bumper blessing. 
And that is why I think Jesus' first miracle in John's Gospel was turning water into what? Wine. As if to say, I've come to bring that bumper blessing that the Old Testament was always pointing forward to, because I've come to bring forgiveness and the ability to change so that you can join the side of obedience and blessing. So to wrap Genesis up, at the end of chapter 49, Jacob dies, and in chapter 50, Joseph, as promised, takes his body from Egypt and buries it in Canaan. And Genesis ends like this, chapter 50, verse 24. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. And so Joseph died, being 110 years old. They embalmed him and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. But like Jacob, Joseph says, don't leave my body here because this is not our final destination. This is not the future. Which shows he was remembering that he belonged to God's unfinished story, not to the world, not to Egypt or anywhere else. And that he was looking forward to the end. And the lesson is simply that we should be doing the same. Let's pray. Father, as we pass through this world, help us to remember we belong to you, to find our security in you, and to learn our goals and values from you. And on the strength of your Son, our Lord Jesus' resurrection, keep us believing that the end of our stories lies beyond this life, in our own resurrections, and in your finishing off of the work that you've begun in us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So now let's sing again to close. <laughs>